Welcome to the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program's weekly podcast. Uh, This is Between the Vines. My name is Kevin Martin. I'm here with Andy Musa, and we wanted to bring you a somewhat of a New York-centric update, but I know since Erie County PA is so close to the border, we are seeing some indirect impacts when things like this happen. So I think it's relevant to the whole industry in some ways. Um, But basically, we will just jump right in. New York State has a wage board that considers what overtime rules should look like. And they met on 128 and um, it was, it was um, you know, in the legislation that was passed a few years ago that they were going to be meeting and considering lowering the overtime threshold. Uh, and basically what they're trying to do is look at adverse impacts of lowering that threshold. And if they think the market can stand it, they're sort of charged with lowering it. Um, It's a group of three people and they they made three motions. All three were passed. All three were a split decision, uh, two to one. So the overtime threshold will gradually, will now go gradually decrease in New York for farm workers to 40 hours, just like the rest of the labor pool. So it was at 60 hours. Um, It will remain at 60 hours until that phase in begins. And also I I should mention that this is a a recommendation by this board. They will put together a final report. And one very important part of that report is there will be a 15 day public comment period. Once that comment period has passed, the New York State Commissioner of Labor will receive it will receive that report with the comments and then the commissioner of labor can sort of do whatever the commissioner of labor would like to do. Um, the, the commissioner is able to um, modify these recommendations or not follow them at all or follow them completely. And once the commissioner makes that decision uh, in conjunction with the board's recommendation, then whatever happens would have regulatory authority, meaning uh, if if they accept it without reservation, then what the board recommended would become law. So, so Kevin, let me um, ask you, once that decision is made, when will this about, approximately when will it be implemented? How long? So if they follow the recommendations, we would remain in New York at 60 hours until January of 2024. And that would be the first time that it would decrease by four hours to 56 hours a week. Um, And then it would decrease every other year by that same four hours. So in 2032, it would decrease from 44 hours to 40 hours. And then that would be when it would be fully phased in. So it would start in 2024 and conclude in January of 2032. So sort of the one I think bright spot that the board came up with to try to lessen the economic impact was to phase it in over a fairly long period of time. So, so then anything over 40 hours when it's fully implemented would be considered um, overtime. So, yeah. So for the most part, ag in New York would then be treated just like the rest of the private sector in that, you know, people who are paid hourly would not be exempt from overtime. And that would mean, right, anything over 40 hours would be at least time and a half. And, you know, we could have a long discussion about what time and a half means, especially when you're paying piece rate. 
but essentially, even if you're paying piece rate, you're going to have to pay time and a half. You're going to have to figure out what the hourly rate is and convert it. Um, I, I know growers aren't going to be able to do that exactly, but but the regulations will would require and already do require anybody to do that. Um, the one thing that agriculture has that the rest of the private private sector does not is a non-mandatory day of rest, which means in the private sector, you can't make people work. I don't remember exactly what the rules are, but they certainly can't work like 60 days in a row. It's just not allowed. In agriculture, you can't make them work seven days in a row, but if you want to, if they miss their day of rest in a seven day period, um, you would have to pay them overtime on that seventh day. So even if say, for example, they worked an hour a day for seven hours in a week, they would get an hour of overtime. Um, that, as far as I know, appears as though it will continue, even though the threshold is moving down to 40 hours. Probably when it, once it gets as low as 40 hours, the day of rest would not be a huge consideration because it's, it's somewhat difficult to work 40 hours over seven days. Um, you're probably going to be paying overtime anyway on that seventh day because you'll probably be above 40 hours. I was going to ask you... Um about the piecework because a lot of our guys you know if they have trimmers um they have to do the piecework and convert it to hourly right uh, what would say uh, a grower in new york um had a crew that was um coming in so mm -hmm. they worked actually for somebody else but they're coming in and doing their trimming who who's responsible for that or how's that work so so I, I guess the first thing I would say is on the federal level, so including in PA and on the state level, I know that happens a lot, but none of it, almost none of it is legal. So that's an important thing to keep in mind that if you are pruning grapes, you are doing farm labor. That's very clearly labor on a farm. Um, and what that means is um, you have to be an employee. The people doing that work have to be your employees. They cannot be contractors. The only way they could be contractors is if you're hiring a farm labor contractor, that person would have to be licensed. Um, the list of people who are licensed is publicly available. And I don't wanna say nobody is licensed in our area, but when you look through the list of who is licensed, that's really not how it's working. Um, this Traditionally, the way it's that, has been done is individual laborers were given 1099s, they were treated as contractors, or a crew leader of maybe five or six people was treated as a contractor and given a 1099. They were not treated as employees. If they're doing farm labor, they have to work for somebody. There has to be a licensed farm labor contractor. Um, so that that's not really possible in the legal sense. So what that means is since it's not possible is both the farm labor contractor that's unlicensed and the farmer would be personally liable to make sure overtime was paid. So so you're the farmer is not legally pretending that these workers are contractors. That means legally they're going to be treated as though they were employees which means you're, you, the farmer, are responsible for making sure overtime was paid. And you'd have to do that 
essentially the only the only true legal way to do that would be every week ask them not just for the vines that they prune so you can pay them what you told them you were going to pay them 36 cents 35 cents whatever it might be um, but you also need their hours so you can you can calculate how many hours they worked so each individual might be paid a different amount even if they trim the same number of vines because um, they could have worked a different number of hours and been paid a different amount of overtime. So <laughs> I'm a little slow here. So does that mean that the slower trimmers will take them longer so that they're going to get? I mean, I, potentially if the slower trimmers happen to work more hours, it means those who worked more hours will get paid more. So that could potentially mean that it's the slower trimmers. It might. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the other thing I wanted to touch on, and this, this was important data to the board for making these recommendations. I think it's important data to me just for trying to figure out what the industry might look like when this is implemented on the New York side versus the PA side. So um, some of the things they looked at is just how many workers worked more than 40 hours a week in the industry compared to other industries. 42% um, of workers worked more than 42, 40 hours a week. Um, of that, 18% were 40 to 50, 13% were 50 to 60, and 11% Work, did work more than 60 hours a week. This was in 2018. This was before there were any overtime regulations. Uh, and I think it's important to note that they divided it because it's always been divided, not because they chose to when they when they survey, when they get this survey data, um, crop production and animal production. And in crop production, those working more than 60 hours a week were substantially less than animal production. Um, the same would hold true for 50 to 60 hours a week. So a good chunk of the workforce regularly works more than 40, but in crop production, a lot of it is between 40 and 50. Uh, so that's going to lessen the impact relative to what the animal systems industry is going to go through, but it's still not going to be inexpensive. Um, so I, I sort of think three things are going to happen. You know, one of the things that's going to happen is growers are going to try to manage this they're going to they're going to attempt to get more workers to share workers to decrease the amount of hours worked per week per laborer um, i don't think i know for a fact in animal systems that there's not enough workers to do that and there's too much work in crop production i think there's going to be some of that but i still think probably 25 percent of the workers will work between 40 and 50 hours a week they'll probably be closer to 45 than they you know i don't think they're going to be working 49 51 um, and that's essentially going to mean an inc an average cost per hour is going to be somewhere between two and three dollars per hour and probably closer to four specifically during harvest, but overall across the whole farm between two and $3 per hour. And like I said, animal production, their costs are gonna be higher unless they you know, start to go out of business or replace workers. And they, they can't manage their way out of it just by moving labor around the way crop production can probably, 
probably save about 50% of the cost of what it would be if they just did nothing. Um, that's going to lower the labor supply. So you're going to see probably a decline in the quality of pruning because let less workers, and it's not necessarily that there are going to be less workers, but if all workers work less hours, they're going to be less productive. So they're going to have to find a way to get more done per hour with growers trying to cut back on hours, and that'll just be faster pruning. So that'll be a little bit of it. Um, and work, one of the things that's really important, and I think a lot of the a lot of the testimony that the board heard in the public hearings was this is a recruitment tool. We can afford to pay somebody 60 hours a week because we don't have to pay overtime. They like that because it means they make a lot more money than they would if they only worked 40 hours. So to the extent that it potentially reduces over the overall compensation package that growers can offer, that will also contribute to the potential of a declining workforce because you know they somebody with legal status could go work 40 hours at Home Depot, what's motivating them to, to work on a farm is the fact that they're, it's permissible for them to work 60 hours. We know in the private sector that there's adequate labor so that with most jobs, overtime hours or hours above 40 are substantially less than they were in agriculture. So it's a compensation recruiting tool in as much as it is anything else. And, you know, I think we all know, maybe maybe farmers don't know, uh, well, farmers know some of the exemptions. So farmers don't get paid overtime. I don't get paid overtime and you don't get paid overtime. So now that agriculture in New York is subject to overtime rules, it's important that they understand how that works and why that works, um, who gets paid hourly and who doesn't. So that's not a choice that an employer can make because they feel like making it. They have to fall under specific categories. So a farmer doesn't get paid overtime because a farmer owns the farm. And I think that's an important thing to remember because the ownership that that farmer has is meaningful. And that's what creates a situation where they don't have to pay overtime. So what that means is if you have a key employee, and I think a lot of grape growers do, you know, you've got 200 acres, you might have a lot of pruners, but you've got maybe one guy who helps you a lot and he might not be family anymore. I think 50 years ago, that second person was always family, but maybe not now. That key employee, one thing that was tried in the dairy industry and failed, you know, you can't give him 1% ownership and just say, I'm just not gonna pay you now. Uh, I don't have to worry about minimum wage or overtime. Uh, you own the farm, so you're on the hook too. You can, pay, you can increase their ownership to 1% if it's meaningful, and avoid all these rules and what what they're going to look for is that that that's a transfer plan you know if that one percent is rising over time it's not a problem that they're at one percent for a year i don't think but if they see you know a small farm that has a key employee that owns one percent of the operation for five years so let's say the farm's worth a million dollars so they've got ten thousand dollars in equity that's definitely not meaningful I don't think there's a clear black line of what meaningful is, but if you're slowly transferring the farm to somebody, um, even if you're not transferring anywhere near 100% of it, at some point that's going to be meaningful ownership and you don't have to worry about minimum wage over time. And that could fix this problem for probably just one employee. 
Well, yeah, I was going to ask, you know, in a situation where, say, a son uh, works for his father, but yet, you know, they don't own any portion of the farm yet. I mean, this might push some of these guys to, you know, transfer some of that to their son earlier. I mean, do you see? So there are exemptions for family members. Um, family is somewhat narrowly defined. I don't think we necessarily have to get into it, but son, uh, father, that kind of thing is daughter, mother, that's going to be exempt. So you don't have to worry about it. Okay. Um, the other thing, you know, the sort of restaurant managers of the world that historically didn't make a whole lot of money, but worked 50, 60 hours a week. That is, um, that's another test that will ha would have to be passed. There are rules, PA has rules, New York has rules, and the federal government has rules. So if you're in PA, well, if you're in PA, you don't have to worry about it because ag is still exempt. But in New York, you'd have to make sure you pass those state standards and the federal standards. Um, probably the most important one is gonna be the minimum salary. And on the federal level, that's $684 a week. So that's what would also apply uh, to New York. But uh, there are three types of exemptions. There are um, executives, administrators, and professionals. So New York changed the minimum for executives and administrators to $990 per week, and they linked it to increases in the minimum wage. So we know that by, it's very likely by 2024, the end of 2024, that minimum salary per week for executives and administrators would be $1,125. This saves me a whole bunch of time because I can say, well, that at that salary, it means you're paying very close to $60,000 a year. Uh, looking back at the data of an average farm worker, that's just about double what the payment is to an average farm worker in crop production for Western New York. So probably not practical, again, for more than one or two key employees, if that. Um, so. I like that in the sense that I'd probably don't have to get provide too much information about what an executive or an administrator is because most growers won't be looking to pass those tests. Uh, but essentially, you know, you're, you're not going to have an executive. You're probably going to have an administrator. That basically means they need to be managing people. They need to have authority uh, very much so the similar things that they would need to have to have meaningful ownership other than equity, they would need to be supervising people or they definitely would pass, not pass that test. And it's not as simple as that, you know, they're supervising them on paper. They need to have some, some authority and independence to do that supervision. Um, they probably, to be safe, need to have enough authority so that they're almost able to hire and fire people. That would be very helpful to make sure they pass the test. A lot of farms really aren't set up that way. There's, there might be some decision-making authority passed on to a key employee, but usually it's not that much. It wouldn't be related to production. It would be related to people. Um, in the dairy industry, they might have some luck with uh, learned professionals because you know somebody with a master's in dairy science, depending on what they were doing in that farm, might fall into that category. Uh, typically, what you really want to see is somebody who has an advanced degree. And that's the easiest way to pass that test. 
This might be the most important test that farmers are tempted by because of that minimum being lower at $684 per week. It's more in line of really what a key employee would earn on a farm now. It's not, most key employees are not paid less than that. So, so that's not a huge threshold to, um, to, to work with. The, the problem is, is trying to meet the test of what a professional is. So, you know, they have to have primary duties. It must be, you know, work requiring advanced knowledge. So, so typically a degree is the easiest way to, to, to figure that out. It should be in the field of science or learning. Um, it doesn't have to be uh, a degree, but it, there really needs to be a prolonged course of specialized intellectual instruction. So they're not driving tractors for sure. That would be for executives, administrators. So that would be for professionals. So once you get into the executive world or the administrative world, that, that those two are the ones that um, in the past were more likely to be employers were more likely to be pushing the envelope on passing that test because they were restaurant managers and things like that, that were, those people were not very well compensated. So it was very advantageous for them to avoid hourly rates because they may have been paying them twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a year and really looking for 50 or 60 hours of work. Um, so that's where New York and a few other states focused on increasing the average weekly wage or increasing the minimum weekly wage. And that's how, for whatever reason, professionals were sort of left behind on the state level. Um, so the, the issue there is, you know, those are easier tests to pass probably. I think most farmers could find some employees that might be able to pass that test at least close enough so that they might avoid regulatory scrutiny, even if they're avoiding maybe the spirit of the test. But the problem is they're going to have to pay them almost in New York, almost $60,000 a year. So you might just want to pay overtime. <laughs> yeah. um, and that was really the goal of the state is to, is to make sure that they were being compensated in a way that wasn't, you know, minimum wage plus overtime. So that was for professional work. That was uh, so again, so back to professionals, professionals have the lower salary. That's a federal salary of 684 per week, okay. but there they need to be doing intellectual work. Well, now, would uh, an employee qualify if they say they didn't have a degree, but they had experience? In other words, they, they worked on the farm and they were valuable that way and they had experience. Could they be considered professional? So I think the key element is intellectual. Um, you know, if they're doing, a, if they're fixing a lot of trellis, if they're pruning grapes, if they're um, driving tractors to mow grapes, it would be very difficult, I think, if you look into the details of what they mean by intellectual, for that to be intellectual. Um, if they're primarily focused like on a really large farm with um, soil sampling and running experiments and you know you're relying on their training in viticulture then it gets closer to that if your key employee is focused on stuff like that but it really has those, those duties have to be their key duties you know i think sometimes what we see in medium to large size farms is maybe somebody you know maybe somebody went to cornell and got that degree 
but you know, 60% of their work is still field work. And they're definitely adding value and getting paid more because of the 40% of intellectual knowledge that they have, but it might not fall under a key duty frequently enough to pass that test. Um, you might get away with it on a large enough farm where it's realistic and you're paying enough. Um, but if, you know, if mostly what that worker is doing is regular farm labor, it wouldn't fall under intellectual work. Um, so I think primarily what we're going to see is a changing of how employees are managed to the extent that that's possible and, you know, a constraint on the, the amount of labor that's available. We, you know, we've got this labor shortage that really restricts us on what, what kind of management we can do to reduce the number of hours people work. So that's going to, that's going to create a situation where some overtime is definitely going to be paid if growers, you know, follow the rules. Now, this doesn't have any impact on H-2A workers, does it? Or is that, or that completely It does. Different? So the interesting thing about H-2A workers is theoretically the pool of labor for an industry as small as vineyards um, is unlimited. So theoretically, growers were already considering, you know, if this happened, if this went to 40 hours, would it make more sense to hire um 30% more workers and just reduce the hours. You know, there's there's some math there to try to figure that out because that means more transportation, it means more entertainment, it means more housing, but it also means that you don't have to pay overtime because otherwise you are gonna have to pay H2A workers overtime. It's just your ability to manage your way out of overtime could theoretically be better. Um, H2A workers have said, they haven't done this yet because, you know, it's easy for workers to say things. It's harder for them to actually do them. They've said that they would go to other states because, you know, H2A workers have nothing to do. They're here to work. And if you tell them that they can only work 40 hours, their total earnings are going to be substantially reduced. The value of their time not working is not very meaningful to them. So they're, they would, they would, and they have said that they would go to other states if that were the case. Um, Maybe 50 hours would be enough to entice them. 60 hours has been enough. Um, that has wouldn't impact anything. But then you're, you know, then you're paying overtime on what is an already higher wage rate. Although um, the more you pay HUA workers, the more savings add up from FICA and unemployment insurance that you don't have to pay, because those are all based on wage rates. So really it's almost a wash it comes out that comes out in the end the the higher wages of h2a workers if you raise those wages with overtime versus paying a local person overtime it's a pretty much a wash so they might be getting time and a half on uh 15 an hour instead of 14 depending on which state you're in or whatever but um because of that savings on social security and things like that unemployment, it's kind of a wash. The real expense of H2A that pushes it and makes it more expensive than local laborers or significantly more expensive is going to be the, the extraneous expenses, the entertainment, the transportation, the, the housing. So those don't go up with overtime.
But yes, it would apply to them. It might help PA recruit more H2A workers because you might see growers trying to decrease the number of hours. So it might increase the pool of labor in PA. I think, you know, I, I don't know what it will do in the rest of the industry overall. I mean, I think looking at H2A workers, it's a good thing for PA because those workers could go anywhere in PA. It's very mobile. They don't live in this country, so that they're a little bit ambivalent as to where they're located. When it comes to potentially workers getting paid overtime for working more than 40 hours in Ripley and then not getting paid overtime for working more than 40 hours, you know, five minutes down the road, I'm not sure what those impacts are going to be when there's a labor shortage. It, it, it will be interesting to see if compensation on NPA has to be adjusted to allow PA to compete with, um, with neighboring farms. You know, that, that I, I'm guessing they won't have to, they won't have to do the full amount, but it may move things up a dollar or two an hour. Um, you know, as you get closer to Harbor Creek, maybe it's less of a concern. You're close to the city of Erie, as opposed to, you know, the New York side of Northeast PA, which is starting to get really close to Ripley. There's some, you know, there's a, there's not much mobility issue there. If you're able to get to a farm in Northeast, you're probably able to get to a farm without incurring very much cost in Ripley. So, um, again, this is all theoretical. A lot of it's 10 years down the road. So, trying to speculate exactly what it's going to look like is a little bit difficult but one of the things i think growers should do is you know we can run a scenario about what makes sense whether it's mechanization or spraying or um you know bulk harvesting whatever it is all these things that decrease labor costs um, we know now in new york that the price of labor is going to go up and we almost know how much it's going to go up um, so we know by 20 2032, the minimum wage in New York is going to be right around um, 18 or $19 an hour once you count overtime. So you're going to have a minimum wage of 15. It's going to be very difficult to avoid overtime on 10 to 20% of that labor. Uh, so we know where labor costs are going. Uh, other than we could see them go higher than that, but they can't go lower. It looks like that's going to be legislated into into law. So that's what we're going to work with when we forecast uh, labor savings with mechanization or whatever the labor savings are. I was going to say this might put push the mechanization aspect a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, you know, especially since there are labor shortages and then with this, you know, having to pay the workers overtime, uh, it right. might speed up the process. And then you go to the PA side and I think there's a lot more uncertainty because there's going to be you would think presumably some pressure to increase wages because they're mandatory, you know, they're, they're higher, very close by in a very mandatory way. Um, but, you know, that things like minimum wage, they, they were not very sticky once geography changed. The, the, when we saw minimum wage go from eight to 12 in New York, we didn't see a lot of movement in PA. The labor market wasn't very healthy then. So that's why I say there's a lot of uncertainty. I think under those specific conditions, there wasn't a lot of effect. So we'll have to see what a labor shortage 
and ag-specific legislation that raises prices means for ag-specific labor in PA? Because minimum wage affected everybody. It didn't affect just ag. Everybody in New York. And we didn't see a big effect in PA at first. So, you know, as more pressure hits the labor market, if if pressure continues, if unemployment rates stay really low and pruning crews stay, um, you know, pretty sparse, maybe that will change. I think I think on the PA side, there's just some uncertainty. That's how I would characterize it. Now, let me throw in one situation. This might not pertain, but uh, say you have a, a worker that you know sprays a lot on your farm, and you have to get it done, and you know you're going to be paying them overtime. Do you see a scenario where, you know, they would hire a, a, someone with a commercial license and have them spray their farm? Because then they wouldn't be, would they be, still these rules apply? Um, so I, I, so I guess under your scenario that the commercial applicator is not paying overtime because they have enough workers? No, I'm saying would a would a farmer farmer have to be under the same rules having to pay that commercial operator who has his own business who's coming in to spray your farm? Would he have to be paid overtime if he's, you know, it's it, it's taken, you know, x amount of time to spray? Well, it wouldn't take it wouldn't take that long to you know, have farms that are that big. That, right. So. So the commercial operator, whoever is operating that, unless they, unless it's individually owned, if they're paying an employee, that employee would be subject to overtime rules for working for that commercial operator. Um, traditionally, I have not seen examples where um, custom applications are considered farm labor. I, they have not been treated that way in the past. It's a difficult distinction to make, but I think the owning of the equipment is an important element of the of the distinction whereas you know pruners don't really own equipment so um you might not be individually liable to that employee that's operating that sprayer to make sure that minimum wage or um overtime in new york was was paid so so you you could avoid it in that sense but you know Probably not a great example because custom spray rates are significantly higher than doing it yourself anyway. So it's going to be cheaper to pay the overtime. Okay. Or to try to avoid it some other way. Okay. Um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of people clinging to single row sprayers on some fairly large farms. And that might be where you see, you know, the labor running those things might be very highly motivated by by working extra hours and you know that's not the hardest job in the world to work a longer day so it makes sense that you might have workers who are unable to run a four row sprayer but but available and happy to to work 60 hours a week running a single row sprayer and that might be an area where farmers focus on multi-row equipment which is known relatively inexpensive um, compared to buying multiple single row sprayers. It's, it's very competitive. 
It's really just a question of which labor pool is readily available to you. Somebody skilled that can run a four row sprayer or somebody or multiple people that are able to run a single row sprayer, but that's about the, you know, the limits of their, their ability. So you can see some movement there. Um, that's, that's about all I have. I do want to remind everybody that uh, there has been, um, you know, I think they're coming from Farm Bureau and maybe some of the, the industry, there has been some frustration with how this happened in the sense that it seems to them like this decision was mostly already made uh, because the, their perspective was that a lot of the uh, comments were, you know, very well reasoned and thoughtful about why this wouldn't be an appropriate thing to move over time to 40 hours. I don't know if that's the case or not, but uh, I'm speaking about it this way because a lot of the industry is assuming that this is a done deal and that might be the case. But it is important to remind everybody that there's still a very important hurdle here with the New York State Commissioner of Labor who's gonna to have to receive this report, um, take note of the public comment, comments that were made during the period, and then you know follow the recommendations of the wage board or not. So this isn't, this isn't finalized yet, but it, it's important to understand it if you're interested in making comments or you know, if you're starting to think about making plans. Um, I don't know that this is a done deal. I, I guess what I would say is I'm sure I'm fairly sure that it won't be 60 hours in 10 years. You know, maybe the, these recommendations aren't followed entirely, but but I can't. I'm 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 having a hard time imagining that they would be completely disregarded. So we'll see. Now, before we go, this isn't to get off the, um, you know, this issue. Uh, do you have any updates? Um, maybe on, you know, pesticide prices or fertilizer prices. I mean, is, is it about the same, you know, that you talked about a couple other podcasts uh, ago, or are you seeing some changes? Uh, yeah, so Roundup and glufosinate prices appear to be settling in, as in the theoretical prices of 60 to $80 a gallon are looking more like actual prices as farmers start to order supplies. And um, I think got impatient and maybe rightly so. I mean, nobody needs Roundup next week, but it became, I think, a bus business decision for a lot of farmers to say, this could actually theoretically get worse, not better. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and order something. So, so for a while, those prices were fake in the sense that our suppliers were not ordering anything and we didn't know where, supply, where price was gonna be when local supplies became available. So, you know, in the range of a five to tenfold increase of price of price on Roundup, with now glufosinate being um, very competitively priced compared to Roundup because it also went up lots and lots, but but not quite as much on a percentage basis. So we're gonna see, you know, some very expensive herbicide programs in that sense. We saw prices increase on other herbicide materials, um, much less so. Although I would anticipate that there's a possibility of a shortfall 
uh, once we get further into the growing season because people are going to switch to other materials where they can um, you know we had a lot of growers use pure post-emergent programs for for in a rotation or maybe even five years in a row even if they shouldn't have done that but <laughs> but there were a lot of post-emergent programs in not just in row middles where they you sort of need to use a post-emergent program but under the trellis so i think you'll see more pre-emergence going on under the trellis and in other industries you'll probably see more relatively higher percentage of pre-emergence so that might create a shortfall there that we haven't seen yet we're just seeing higher prices um nothing crazy on the fungicide that i've seen i haven't seen a lot that is concerning uh, we've actually had enough new materials that for specialty crops that things are kind of competitive in the powdery mildew market uh, we're in a good position there um, you know even uh, you know I think Sevia might open up some doors for some grape growers trying to use a Revis top like material in Concords it's not going to be cheap but it's going to cover a lot of diseases and be fairly effective so you know when you start adding up those new materials and costs I, I don't I don't think overall expenses are going to be um, significantly higher. I think if growers tend to use a lot of new materials, which they might do, you might see their budgets expanding, but only because they want them to, because they're trying to, you know, grow what right now is a more expensive crop than it was three years ago. Fertilizer prices have finally, finally stopped moving for a month. I don't know if that's a permanent thing, um, but they did stop moving. Um, there are no real price increases on a national or international basis to report over the last four weeks. Um, local markets are a little all over the place with some labor issues and supply chain issues affecting things both, both positively and negatively. So it really depends on what the source is and what the material is, but it's, but those are local issues defying sort of international and national trends of nothing moving in price. So those could definitely resolve themselves as the growing season gets started. So everything's still expensive. I'm not saying anything went down, but, but it stopped going up. And just as a reminder, that puts us at, um, you know, probably for small quantities, urea is going to be over a thousand dollars a ton. In bulk, it will probably be less than, might be less than nine hundred, depending on the size of the grower. But that'll be that'll be basically the 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 variance somewhere just under nine to um, just just over a thousand. If for growers that are purchasing now, um, you know this this price did go up rapidly if you listen to some of our old podcasts uh, over the past couple of months so, so for some growers they may have purchased earlier um, their price might look a lot different uh, potash prices again those have not moved at least on a national basis i think locally maybe they have gone down some so they're off their peak locally uh, so i it's a little difficult to say what that price is going to be but you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to $800 a ton. And um, that will also depend on future movements in that price. Phosphorus has been the worst uh, in terms of price increases. More recently, 
um, but we don't put on a lot of phosphorus. So that's good news for us. You know, a phosphorus budget for us, if we had a real severe problem, might be might have been a hundred dollars an acre last year, uh, and this year would be closer to two hundred dollars an acre, and that's that's a really unusual situation if you're putting on that much phosphorus. Typically, if you see a little bit of a need for phosphorus, you're looking at maybe twenty five percent of that. So you're looking at something like you went from $25 to $50 an acre. I think, Andy, that's all I have. I noticed that uh, if you're watching on YouTube, my camera has decided to focus on something besides me. Uh, so maybe that means it's time to go since if my camera can't pay attention, I don't know if the growers can at this point. So we could probably leave it there. Anything else, Andy? No, I think uh, you answered the questions. Well, thank you for joining me. And uh, I want to thank our audience for joining us. And we'll be back next week with um, probably some nutrition stuff if we get to it uh, or whatever's going on currently. Uh, so again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.